Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits. And why shouldn't we be? The raising of the curtain of the NFL season has come. And delivering the latest podcast, which for quite some time I have not had a guest. And it brings me great pleasure to have Chris Dishman, the former NFL All-Pro cornerback of the Houston Oilers, also played in Kansas City, Minnesota, as well as the Washington Redskins once upon a time. We get into his career, his days as a Houston Oiler, which suffered some serious heartbreak, especially in the postseason. The crazy 1993 year of the Oilers that season. We also go way back to his college days at Purdue with one-time teammate and now coming full circle, an assistant on Rod Woodson's XFL team. I'll touch on that as well as what's going on with the sport today. Get his thoughts on the NFL as it is in 2022 as opposed to when he played back in the 90s. We talk about a bunch of different things and glad to have you on board to listen to this conversation, which has chock full of nuggets. Also, his coaching experience, what it's like to coach the young player, especially with all the distractions, social media, etc. So sit back, relax, or if you're on the treadmill or even cleaning your apartment, without further ado, my discussion with former All-Pro cornerback Chris Dishman, and I'll see you on the other side. And uh, to get us started, I know you've, of course, been coaching. And that's one of the things that, yes. And ironically, during the 2020 XFL season, I think I may have mentioned this in an email to you, that uh, we happened to be in the same elevator because I did get credentials for the XFL at that time. And it was interesting because I saw you walk into the elevator. I said, oh, Chris Dishman, hopefully I'll get an opportunity to speak with him. And then, of course, COVID hit, and then that went right out the window. So, <laughs> You should have said something to me when you saw me. Uh, I should have, but I know you were a bunch of other coaches, and obviously I didn't want to make a scene there. So mm-hmm. you know what? Here it is now, two years in the making to have you here. So uh, start off with that, with coaching, what you've been doing this day and age. Obviously, your career in the NFL, I don't want to say it's long gone, just to not show your age. but oh, so yeah, it's, you know, No, of course. You, you don't have to say it. I say it. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. So, uh, yes, tell us how you got into coaching, because I know you've been bouncing around. I know it's San Diego, and obviously you had a bunch of stops. But right now, you're currently with the New Jersey Generals, I believe, with the USFL. Is that right? Yes, I, I coached with the Generals this last offseason. Um, and then, like you said, bouncing around. I just I just try to take wherever God take me. That's where I decided to go to. And now God has taken me to the XFL back again with the Vegas team. With oh, nice. Rod 
So I am going to be coaching there for the uh, next year. So like I said, wherever God takes me, that's where I go. I don't I leave it up to his direction and just follow his direction. I've been coaching almost 17 years now. Wow. I know my wife and I the other day looked like 17 years. Where are we been? We, and we missed some stops in between, but we had to ask, well, it was four years here, three years here, one year, one year, one year, one year, two, you know what I'm saying? We have a lot of one years. So uh -huh. hopefully here's late, hopefully here soon that those one years can turn more into four or five years. And I can stay in one place longer, you know, but like I said, wherever God takes me, that's where I go. I just love coaching. I love coaching young men. I love coaching the camaraderie of the guys in the locker room, the camaraderies in meetings, uh, putting a plan together and then having it come through, um, knowing that you know on the sidelines sometimes when I call calls, hoping that they'll work out and the, and the person make the play. And sometimes I call a call that I was like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Then the guy make the play. And I tell myself, great call. So it's, it's – <laughs> It's one of, of those things that I, I just, you know, I love to be in a young man's life and have him years later still text and call me and call me coach. No, that's the ultimate compliment right there. And it's interesting because considering that you've now been a coach 17 years, and I'm kind of curious, especially over the last few years with social media, all the distractions that are out there, is it tough to get through to the younger player? especially you being a part of the defense or is it pretty much business as usual when it comes to getting the guy's attention pretty much 24 seven to be invested and involved in the team? One thing about a uh, younger generation is, is I was young at one time and, I'm, and you was young at one time. We feed off information, right? We're, we're knowledge for power. We, I mean, we want knowledge. So everyone said, Oh, the young generation is not, well, it's, it's part of the young generation. You got to adapt to their generation you know, in order to be a good, a successful person. I learned to adapt to, hey, we have to have music in practice. I learned to adapt to that. When I grew up, and I'm sure when you grew up, it was no music at all. Everybody had to listen to the coach. Right. It was no, when I was, I was taught tackling head in front. Today's football, you can't teach tackling head in front because of concussion protocol. You got to teach head behind, wrap and roll. So things have to change with when things change. So, like I said, I don't find it hard at all coaching the young generation because they're thirsty for knowledge. They want to learn. Uh, they understand that I've been there and done that, played in the NFL for 13 years, now 17 years coaching. So they understand that I that I know what I'm talking about. And like I tell them all, all the time, back when I played, I don't know, I hate to always say when I played. Uh, <laughs> right. It's always going to be a player's game, always. And the players can control what the outcome of the game is. I tell them all the time, it's not such a thing as a bad call. It's a bad play, but not a bad call. Because no matter what call is called, you have to execute that call. And if you execute that call to the fullest, then it's going to be a great call. So I keep telling them, don't worry about calls. Worry about your responsibility. What is your job? I always tell them, you always have to know your technique your alignment, your assignment. What is your alignment? What is your assignment? What is your technique? How you can affect that play to be a positive play. And don't worry about one bad play. You don't want one bad play turning into two and turning into three. That's how you get yourself on a bench. But if you can quickly have that D, I call that DB mentality. I like. I don't ever remember getting beat deep, even though I probably did sometimes. <laughs> but you, don't remember, you don't remember plays like that. You got to go right. on to the next play. 
And you got to learn from what the mistakes you've done. You got to come to the sideline, listen to the coach, look at the hype. Now, today's football is, is great because guess what? You don't have the pictures. Back then, we had the pictures. Now you have a live version. You have an iPad. You look and see. That's awesome. As a coach, it's helped you out as a coaching. You know, it's so much easier to coach these days because you have the iPad right in front of you. And soon the play happened, about five, five, uh, three or four minutes later, you can go to the iPad and you can see the play. So there's no more, Coach, I did this. I, I, I was there. No, you wasn't because here's the play. Right there, you can show the guy the play and show him his mistakes right then and there. You don't have to wait for the next morning. Right. And unlike yesteryear where you had to get the photographs, the black and white, usually you <laughs> see the quarterbacks doing that, but I'm sure the corners and the DBs, yes, you probably got yeah. those same photos and you talk about, and again, I know it goes back to what you said from the time I played to now, but yes, everything is on an iPad. Like you said, the information is just coming at you nonstop. And I'm sure it makes your job a lot easier knowing that you don't have to wait for photographs or to wait to get word from the guys upstairs in the press right. box to, to get that information to you. Right. It's like I say, you don't have to wait till the next morning. It's so much easier. And then it's like I tell guys that, you know, honesty in football is the most important thing you can do. Because you tell a coach, oh, I, I was there, I was there, I was there. And he look at the play and like, dude, you wasn't there. Mm. He was nowhere around there. Or you you didn't get in that hole. You didn't get in that gap. But just be honest. That way we can correct it and move on. But don't tell me you was, you was there and you wasn't. You know, just honesty is, is the most important thing in football. Right. From a and player I was, to coach respective. No, of course. And before we got to your playing days, one other thing about coaching, was that something that you always had in your mind, especially as you got later into your career to kind of dabble or even go full force into coaching? Was that something that was immediate or did that happen over time before you were able to get on the sideline to control or patrol the sidelines with these young men? Coaching, you have to, um, it's something that is, is in you. But you also have to form it. Whereas when I got through playing, I don't think I was ready to coach because mm -hmm. I still see myself playing another year. I want to play another year. But as the years went past, therefore I could realize that I can coach. And with coaching, you have to have patience because really everyone's not going to be a Deion Sanders or Rod Woodson. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone's not going to be like that. So you have to be able to teach this guy the way you want him to be taught and understand how he learned. You know, everybody learns different. Some people you have to walk through and some people can tell them and get it. They get it right away. You know, I have several players. You tell them something, get it right away. There's some players. They'd be like, they say they get it, but you see that clock steadily twirling in their head. They realize they, and you realize they don't get it. So you have to go out and walk through. And I tell them, you know what? Let's go walk through it because I don't know it that good. So let's just go walk through it together. So therefore, you take the pressure off of him of being, oh, uh, some people may, oh, he can't learn or something like that. So you take the pressure off the guy and tell him it's all about you. You, you want to go walk through it. And then you just go walk through it with him and then he can get it. Of course. And now to – it's funny because you mentioned Rod Woodson a couple of times and this comes full circle because – with you going to Vegas and being a part of his staff in the XFL, and then, of course, going back to your college days at Purdue, not only were you in the defensive backfield with him at Purdue, but you also were both uh, track and field 
athletes to the point where I can imagine what the discussions were like, not only on the gridiron, but also on the track as well. If you kind of walk us through what your relationship was like with Rod, not only during that time in college, playing on the football field and as well as on the track competing against one another. Yeah, Rod's a, a very fun, funny individual. You know, he always laughing and, and having fun and stuff like that. But uh, Here's how I met Rod Woodson. Mm. Um, I was a receiver coming out of high school. So coming out of high school, I was a receiver. So getting to Purdue, they switched me to defensive back. Mm. So our position coach, Ron Mims, was yelling, Dishman, come here, Dishman, come here. But I stayed in the offensive meeting room because I've said offense stay here, defense go another room. I was sitting sitting because I'm a receiver. I'm not no defense. So Coach Mims came up. Say, don't you hear me calling you? Aren't you a dishman? I said, yes, but I'm a receiver. He said, you were a receiver. You're a DB now. So oh. I was like, you know, I was like, and wasn't no transfer portal or nothing like that. No. So I, couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't go run to the transfer portal. So I went over there, and the only seat was left. And this is how God works in great ways. Mm-hmm. The only seat that was left for me to sit, because I was late to the room, was by Rod Woodson. Oh, and from yeah. that point on, Rod and I have been friends. And he reached over to me and tapped me. Man, you all right. You can do this. You can do this. And from that point on, um, you know, him and I have been friends. Of course, I got redshirted my first year. Mm-hmm. And he was practicing playing. And the only thing I was doing was practicing. So, right. you know, but it's it, it everything works out for a reason, you know. Oh, of course. And obviously you had all those battles, which we'll get to in the old AFC Central <laughs> when he was a member of the Steelers and obviously you with the Oilers. So now kind of fast forward there, because, of course, you at Purdue and then you get drafted 1988. Did you feel like you should have been drafted higher? Were Was it a thing where now back then the draft wasn't as big as it is today? I mean, <laughs> they, they, I mean, you could watch the draft from. It. Yeah, it's almost like watching the Oscars. I mean, that's it's how a whole it is. week. No, today is a whole week. <laughs> no, absolutely. But the, but I just want to get a, a bit of an understanding of what it was like back then to think that, did you feel you should have been drafted a little bit higher there in the 88 draft or where you fell? Did that just give you motivation to just get after it and get yourself to the old pro level that you did? Jay, I, I was just happy to be drafted. I don't, I didn't, I didn't, back then I didn't care what rounds. I didn't know nothing about no rounds. They, um, the Houston Oilers called me and said they was about to draft me. Mm. I didn't ask them what round, do nothing, you know, because it was, it wasn't televised. Right. So, you know, the, I think the first round, no, not even the first round wasn't even televised. I don't think too much was televised. So it was not televised or nothing like it is, like it is now. And I wasn't invited to New York mm. or nothing to sit in the, in the green room for be a first rounder. And when they called and told me they was going to draft me, you know, it was only three people that was in my apartment. It was my mom, my dad, and I. Mm-hmm. And they knew that the draft day was that day. So I think my mom and dad came down just to, for that day. And just in case if I don't get drafted, for that, if I could hang out with somebody. <laughs> so I, <laughs> no, that's very smart. <laughs> I don't know if they came down for my big draft party. I, you know, I had a draft party of three. Uh-huh. And my mom and I was watching the old... Andy Griffin replays. I've told this story before. Uh-huh. My mom and I was watching the old Andy Griffin replays, and my dad was back there asleep. Mm. 
Then finally, when the Houston Oilers called and said it was going to draft me, they ended up drafting me. My mom called back to my dad and told him that I got drafted, and my dad was ready to pack up and go back to Louisville. So, mm. <laughs> you know, oh, so wow. it, was, it was one of those big party situations we had. Nice. So it wasn't, like I said, as, I was just happy to be drafted. Um, I knew going into the draft or going wherever I go, I was going to make it. Mm. I had that determination that I'm going to make it. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna fail. I'm not gonna fail my family. My mom and dad have put too much into this, as far as the driving back and forth. We had, we had an old clunker of a car. And they was driving Wisconsin. They would drive Illinois. They would drive everywhere to see me play. And I said I cannot go back to Louisville and not make it. Mm. And I just put the effort and energy in. I did when I played in college. You know, running the steps, running the hills, watching. Try to watch film, uh, knowing my knowing me better than knowing my opponents better than I know myself, and just put the effort in to actually sit there and 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 be be successful. You know, I, I wanted to be that guy. I wanted to be the man. I always wanted the best receivers. Even when I was rookie, I used to go to Coach Glanville. Talking, about, I could cover that guy. And Coach Glanville used to look at me like, "Yeah, in the future you will." <laughs> <laughs> right. So, and that's what he started calling me future. That's what he's giving my nickname future. In the uh -huh. future, everything was always in the future. Everything was always in the future with me. I right. said, Coach, I can cover him. Well, in the future, you will. And I uh -huh. said, no matter who the receiver, I can cover him. Because I was very fortunate also to get drafted by the Houston Oilers because they played the bump and run, the man to man technique that we played in college. Mm. And if they played an off technique, zone type of technique, I don't think I would have been in an NFL. I was just very fortunate to get drafted by a team that played the same style defense. And that's where people don't realize that you see these rookies coming in, you think he's out of place, but he's not really used to the system. And I was fortunate to be used to the system. Hey, you got the guy on the right, you got a guy on the left, and you go up there and you can play off or you can bump. Well, with my skills, I was a lot better bump than playing off because I believed in my speed. I didn't think no one can outrun me. So that's why I just bump and run and go and carry it over into Houston because that's the system Coach Glanville never run. And Nick Saban was my position coach my first year, mm. which he's still coaching DBs, which yes. is a hell of he's a hell of a defensive back coach. He is the foundation of DBs. Uh, the drills that we have done back then in 1988, I still do now, and I still see him do the same drills because those drills work. And they, and they can carry over, and they game drills. They're not just drills to get you tired, not drills just to do drills. They game drills and everything that can come up in the course of a football game. And that's interesting, too, because you are a very physical defensive back, and obviously you were very tall. A lot of defensive backs back then, the first one that comes to mind is Dale Carter, based on his size, speed. And here you are, a guy that's over six foot, six one, I believe. And I was going to even ask you if the play, people out there who have never seen you play your type of style compared to, I don't want to say today's game, but you were pretty much ahead of your time because back then I get it that the rules were a little bit different, but if somebody just put on a tape to see Chris Dishman play, I'm sure they were looking and say, wow, this guy could have played in the NFL today based on everything that I just mentioned. So I'm sure that's got to be a compliment in its own right, considering that everybody looks at, cover skills and speed, but physicality to me is also a key component in being a great corner. 
You have to be an all. You have to be an all around corner. You have to. You got to cover. You got to hit. You got to tackle. Mm-hmm. You know. You got to be able to do those things to be a DB. Um, you know. I I was I love playing inside. I love playing the right, the left. I could play inside, and I'm and I made it a point. Even though I could run, uh, Jay, I really didn't like the run. Oh no! <laughs> I really? know it sounds crazy. It sounds crazy, <laughs> but I always and I was and as as I studied the game, I said, okay. If I can get my hands on these guys within the first five yards, I don't even have to run that much. Right. Because the quarterback only have in the pros three seconds at max to throw the football. Mm-hmm. So within those three seconds, if I can have this quarterback go a thousand one, a thousand two, up to a thousand three, he have to get off my guy. He have to go somewhere else. So that was my strategy of getting my hands on early, doing my work within the first six yards and have the quarterback go somewhere else with the football because there's no way he can sit back, back there and hold the football, especially with our defensive line, with Ray Childers, Doug Smith, you know, William Fuller, yes. you know, Lamar Latham coming off the edges. You know, with our defensive line, there's no way he can sit back there and hold the football. So that's why I was just trying to mathematically do the numbers, all right? He had three mm-hmm. seconds to throw the football. If I could hold this in front of this guy, for two seconds, then I'm okay. And like, and I'm sorry to jump around, but when I first retired, Mm -hmm. I followed the rodeo circuit. I did cutting competition, which is cutting horses. So I I used to do those and I always, I was the horse and the receiver was the cow. If you go Mm -hmm. back and look up cutting competitions, you see the horse always try to stay in front of the cow for Mm -hmm. three seconds. And he's had to keep, and then he go and get another cow and stay in front of that cow for three seconds. So I um, I enjoy doing that. And that's why I used to tell the receivers that you're the cow, I'm the horse. I want to be able to do cutting competitions with you and keep you in front of me for three seconds. Yeah. Wow, interesting. And it's <laughs> funny, also what you mentioned earlier, having a bad memory to play cornerback is also vital because, right, if you're getting burned or getting torched by the Jerry Rices of the world, or Michael Irvin, you definitely do not want to, if you're having a bad day, the last thing you need to do is sulk or hang your head because the one thing you have to do is erase that from your memory bank in order to play a good game. You, you do. You have to erase it, but you have to, re- it's, it's, a, it's a metaphor. You have to erase it, but you have to remember. You have to remember right. what you did wrong, what steps you did wrong. If I went with the wrong hand, if, if, I, if I hard jammed him already once, then I can't hard jam him again. I got to play off. If I was hard inside and he went outside and came back in, then I got to remember the release he used and stuff sure. like that. So you can't – I say out there is the game within the game. You got to play the game within the game out there. You can't do the same thing every time because that receiver is going to get a B on you and know exactly what you're doing when you play off, when you play press, if you're hard inside. You know, sometimes I was hard inside, move out. Sometimes hard outside, move in. So I just try to play the game within the game out there with the receivers because it keeps them guessing. Absolutely. And now that we talk about your career to get into the old rivals in the AFC Central, and I'm sure this has brought up to you quite a bit, I think about the one game in Cincinnati, which I'm sure you probably talked about a thousand times, <laughs> Sam Weish, the 61-7 game where they're onside kicking, I believe it was at 45 nothing, And yes. I believe you also had, if not – a fumble recovery, maybe even been an interception. And I know that that pretty much egged the crowd and I'm sure got the Bengals <laughs> sideline all ticked off. And you mentioned Jerry Glanville. Was Glanville pretty much a proponent of why the Sam Weishes, even the Chuck Knowles of the world, couldn't stand not only just he, but also your team? Or was it a thing where you embodied 
pretty much what Jerry Glanville was trying to say. So therefore they were coming at you, whether it be the Browns, Bengals or Steelers, because there were only four teams in the division back then. I kind of go through what that was like, just being that team with the black hat and knowing that wherever you went to three rivers, riverfront, and even Cleveland municipal stadium, that it was definitely going to be a battle to say the least. Well, we, we relished a bit being a black hat. We loved it. You know, Jerry Glanville wears all black. He used to mm-hmm. leave his tickets to Elvis. Right. You know, as a <laughs> team, we had so many great players and so many good character guys on our team. Mm. You know, we had some funny individuals. We had some not we had some serious individuals at time, but we had guys who loved the competition of playing, who accepted anything in front of them and did by any means necessary try to get it, try to work it out. So it wasn't like, oh, we just duck and hide and don't let them see us. It was like, okay, we're here. What's what? What what are we going to do? We're here. You know, so we was we was very confident in our our abilities as players. And we had a very good team. My years in the Oilers, we had so many good teams that we just couldn't get over the hump in the playoffs. But we had so many good teams. If you can just look at our running backs alone um, in the run and shoot, we had Mike Rozier, Mm -hmm. Alonzo Highsmith, Alan Pinkett, Lorenzo Wright, Gary Brown. We yeah. had five running backs at one, four four running backs at one time on a team that was a one back offense, and we had four great backs who could have went anywhere and played somewhere else. Then we had the receivers, an offensive line with Matthews, Munchak, Pennison, David Williams, uh, Brad Brad Hopkins. You know, we had so many guys that was like. It was crazy. And then we had two linebackers that you guys probably very rarely hear. And one of our defense tackles, you very, very hear his name. His name Doug Smith. Mm-hmm. Doug Smith demanded the double team. Couldn't no one in the league block him one-on-one. He demanded the double team. So, therefore, the William Fuller's, the Ray Childers, the Sean Jones, all those guys can get off and get in the sacks. But you look at the film, you have two people or maybe three on Doug, and no one on our end. Because he the he demanded the double team. That center could not snap the ball and and try to block him. That wasn't gonna happen. Right. So you had a guys like that. Then you had a guys like Eric Fairs, one of our linebackers from, uh, from Memphis, who was very good special team players. And the human uh bowling ball, Eugene Seals, who was a hell of a special teams player. Right. You know, we had so much talent on that team that it was like constantly that and we challenged each other in practice. Some of yeah. some of our best games was at practice, <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> going against yeah, going against receivers like a Hayward Jeffries, a Ernest Givers, a Curtis Duncan, a Willie Drury, you know, a Tony Jones, um, Drew Hill, Three Hill. Going against those receivers like that, it's like you know. Then they catch the ball, they start talking smack. Then I knock down a pass, I talk smack. The next thing, no, we got a full off full off brawl. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, it was one of those things that we we. Loved coming to practice because we wanted to show the other person up. And it carried over in the game. And then I have to ask this. I know this is going down memory lane, but then a bad memory. But I'm going to lump this up in one. Which one hurt more? And I think for obvious reasons, I could probably guess. But the the 91 division loss in Denver, of course, the game up in Orchard Park in Buffalo the following year, or the game at home against Kansas City. Which one of those three stung the most? Well... I think they all hurt the same, you know. Um, mm. I got to say the Buffalo, I think the Buffalo would be hurt more. Because, because of the league. Uh, 
because of the lead. And we did get cocky. We got very cocky. I know I got very cocky. You know, I was like, sure, I'm taking, I unloosed my shoulder pads a little. I was like, wow. they ain't running the ball. You know, they ain't going <laughs> to run the ball. They're going to throw, throw, throw. Right. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking picks, picks, picks. You hear what I say? I'm thinking, I'm thinking picks, picks, picks. So right. I think a lot of players got to where they started thinking about themselves and not thinking about the game itself. Mm. And I'm a corporate of that. I'm 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 guilty of saying that I'm one of those. Right. You know, I was thinking like, okay, I can get this pick, I can get this interception, I can do this, I can do that. I started thinking about that instead of thinking about the end results of getting this win and moving on. And I was gonna ask you what were the reasons why, but you explained that eloquently there as to like you said, the shoulder pads got a little bit loose. I'm sure everybody <laughs> in the sideline was looking forward to next week at 35 right. after Bubba McDowell's pick to you know, pick six. Yeah, oh geez. But I figured that would be it. And I would also think, like you said, they're all the same, but the game against Kansas City in your building, and that year, obviously, they made a documentary out of it, Houston 93, and that was as probably as crazy uh, of an NFL season, and it kind of goes under the radar because you guys didn't win, and of course, for all the players that you mentioned, you guys were just fully loaded, but with the situation, Bud Adams says that if we don't win a Super Bowl, I'm going to dismantle the team, the one and four start, the situation with Jeff Um. You also yeah. had Buddy Ryan, Kevin Gilbride on the sideline. I mean, that was as chaotic as a year as it was. And I'm sure you've probably explained that several times to a lot of the people like myself who are wondering how that year really just came together, but at the same time fell apart. You know, um, one of our coaches, uh, Frank Novak, mm. we was at the halftime of the New England game and we are getting beat. And Coach Novak just got up, started screaming, I'm tired of this, S-H-I-T, I'm tired of this. <laughs> and just was like, challenged everyone. He got in everyone's face and challenged everyone to do better. Right. And we ended up, I think we ended up winning that game. Yeah, I think we ended up winning that New England game and and got us to two and four instead of one and five. Right. And from that point on, we went on a terror. We went on a roll. Because we came together as a team to decide that this is our team. And like I tell you, it's always a player's game. And once the players get together and decide this is our team, yes, we need the coaches. We need the coaches' help. But this is our team. This is our our responsibility as well as the coach's responsibility. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's when you can start winning. Yeah, and that's uh, pretty much as best as you could put it. And to think that you guys who had that start, one and four, and then you won 11 straight, and then that game in the Astrodome, and then soon after that, of course, a couple more years, that's when Houston ended up going to Tennessee. And then at that point, I know you bounced around a little bit, went to Washington, then, of course, went to play for the Vikings mm -hmm. before wrapping up his career. Yeah. No, of course, Kansas City, too, in between that. So I'm sure that even though your stay in Houston is what you're going to be remembered by, but the other stops along the way, how significant was that for you during your playing days? It was good. It was good going to leaving Houston, even though I didn't want to leave Houston. But I think I had to leave Houston. You come at a point in your career where you say, okay, I got to go somewhere else. And I teamed up with a, with a wonderful individual, Daryl Green. I'm sure we all oh, sure. heard of Daryl Green. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so uh, I teamed up with a wonderful individual like Daryl who helped me on and off the field. You know, right. um, you know, it's just having a guy like that and see him, how he can oh, play over 27 years. I can see how and why he played over 27 years. Because his dedication to him, to, to his family, his dedication to God, 
his dedication to his business of work and which is football. Mm. And seeing that helped me grow. And I thought I was thought I was at at a high point of my career, but seeing a guy like Daryl Green go out every day and practice is extremely hard. Like he played, you know, said after practice, running laps, before practice and running laps. You know, I was like, man, this guy never stops. Right. Right? He's called everybody buddy. And he bring <laughs> it. He said he got all, all his energy from Tissy Rose. So oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah. So uh so but seeing someone like that practice. Uh, uh, it made me turn my game up a notch. And that's why him and I both that year went to the Pro Bowl. Oh, very nice. Now, a couple other things. Your thoughts about the game today. Do you still watch it? Do you follow it? Do yes. you? Oh, okay. Fantastic. And obviously with all the rule changes, and again, I know you don't want to be the guy that's all oh, during my days, understood. But uh, do you enjoy the game just as much as you did watching it as a fan now than you were playing it back in your day? No, of course I love playing it before watching it. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah, but do I enjoy the game? Yes, I do enjoy the game. Oh, okay. I, lo I love seeing the game. I love seeing the young guys, not young guys, a lot of my young, I should say men. Not, I like, I love to see the men uh, achieve their goals, uh, right. getting the, winning the Super Bowl. I love seeing Eric Weddle, a guy I used to coach, come sure. back and get, get a Super Bowl ring, which he's well-deserved of. Right, you know? the Rams. So I watch the game and, you know, the game is a, a little different, yes. The quarterbacks are much protected now mm -hmm. than it was back then, right. you know. So if I'm a quarterback, I know no one can hit me. I know they can't hit me that hard, so I'm just going to sit in the pocket and wait and wait and wait and wait. <laughs> so that's that's the advantage of more than anything back then and then. They always had a five-year rule, so the right. DBs always had a five-year rule. Mm -hmm. Now, what's, what I don't like is say the ball is thrown to the left side of the field, and someone on the right side of the field touch a receiver pass five, six yards and get a flag, mm -hmm. that's considered um, defensive pass interference, and it's a penalty. But it's not affecting the play on the left side of the field. Right. Now, that I don't like. No, of course. No, because then that's one of those things where it's like, hey, you want to call the game uniformly. You don't want it to be a thing where you're going right. to take your spots or the referees are going to – be a big influence in the game one way or the other, whether they don't throw the flag or whether they do. And obviously that could change the outcome of a game or especially during the postseason, which obviously everybody has their eyes on. It kills you. And I do like the instant replay. And I, I'm going to say this, uh -huh. I've been saying this, that if they, we had instant replay when Buffalo came back, when Don Beebe stepped out of bounds. Yes. He ran out of bounds and came back in and caught the football. That's right. That would have been an instant replay, and that would not have been a touchdown. And we would never talk about the Oilers Bills uh comeback because it would never have been a comeback. At Absolutely seven, not. At seven points off the board. <laughs> yeah. And then who knows what the uh, outcome of that game would have been? Absolutely. Correct. 100%. Correct. Yes. <laughs> All right. I have some rapid fire for you because, uh, of course, I would just want to be cognizant of your time. So I will uh, start here. What was the favorite stadium that you played in? Favorite stadium I played in was the Browns, Cleveland. Cleveland. Because the fans used to throw snowballs and ice at you and batteries and stuff like that. I used to love that. Yeah, no, I'm sure. And they were rough, too, that dog pound. So, right. Uh, the one quarterback that you knew was going to be a long day. Dan Marino. Enough said. <laughs> what about wide receiver? Jerry Rice, when he don't talk to you. Oh, is that right? Oh. I used to talk a lot of smack to Jerry, but when he talked smack to me back, 
I was like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'll be all right. But when he don't, when he don't say anything, then I'm like, oh snap, this is gonna be a long day. Oh, uh, you knew, you knew it was gonna be trouble. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what about a uh, favorite teammate? Well, I've got a lot of favorite teammates. You know, um, I just mentioned uh, Rod Woodson at Purdue. Sure. I mentioned Daryl Green. Mm-hmm. I mentioned my buddy Bubba McDowell, who's coaching at Prairie View, uh, oh. and right now he's a head coach there at Prairie View. So. I have so many teammates. I just can't pick one. No, I totally understand. Yeah. Also, what was the biggest moment or highlight of your career? Um, getting in the game the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, getting the game the first time versus the New York Jets and Wesley Walker. Um, yes. I know it was a highlight and a low light. The highlight, I got a chance to play against Wesley Walker. Right. The low light, he beat me for two, two touchdowns that game. Oh. <laughs> no, of course. So the highlight and the low light, all in one. It's all in one. Yes. <laughs> no, absolutely. So, um, and just um, being able to uh, cheer, see other people cheer for you and make their, make their day. Right. No matter if it's a win, a loss, signing an autograph for a young uh, a young uh, player or signing an autograph for a fan and you know they them telling me that thank you and oh I'm glad you did and stuff like that just able to be able to um be a be a um, oh what's the word be a joy to somebody else right and listen and you did that for me here tonight so Mr. Dishman I really appreciate your time and not only that taking a trip down memory lane about your career oh, yeah. best of luck with the Vegas team out in the XFL and uh, hopefully somewhere down the road, we will uh, meet again or reconvene. And uh, once again, it's an honor and pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Jay. Have a great one. Once again, many thanks goes out to Chris Dishman for joining me here on the podcast. It was great to have him on and full disclosure. Unfortunately, Time was limited, and that was all on me because my Zoom account, for whatever the reason, was only giving me the 40-minute limit, as I'm sure you've experienced in the past for those who have used Zoom. And for whatever the reason, I wasn't able to get a good 45, 50, even an hour because I had a few other questions I wanted to ask him. Of course, Buddy Ryan being one of them. He did make a mention about Nick Saban. Going back to his days early on, whether it was at Purdue and along his stay In the NFL, when Houston in particular, not even just going back to his college days, but a few other things I wanted to touch on, but because I had that 40-minute limit and it was a surprise to me, you could watch the interview in its entirety on YouTube. It'll be on my YouTube channel, so you'll get to see me being distracted as I'm trying to work the mouse and work my laptop to see if I could extend this interview So it'll give you a visual as to me trying to work this on the fly and unfortunately did not get to ask him a few more questions that were pertinent to our conversation. So my apologies there. But again, thank you for Chris Dishman for spending time with me to share his story and his experiences so I can in turn flip that to you guys and gals. And with that being said, thanks again for stopping by. Many thanks for your participation. It goes without saying how much it means to me that you come, stop by, whether it's today, in the past, or hopefully in the future, to get your sports talk from yours truly means the world to me. And if you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you get your podcasts. 
Throw me a few stars, write a review. I would greatly appreciate it. It will go a long way in increasing the visibility of this podcast so I could get more guests like Chris Dishman here on the podcast or even the blogger, writer, studio host, broadcaster, etc. So if you could please do your part by just subscribing, rating, and reviewing on wherever you get your podcasts, I would greatly appreciate it. If you also want to hit me up with any questions, comments, criticism, or praise, or even a suggestion, you could do so by going to any of my social media accounts, TikTok, The J Reels Podcast, Instagram, J Reels, or The J Reels Podcast, Twitter, J Reels, one, just a number, Facebook, The J Reels Podcast fan page, or the old-fashioned way by going to the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Again, hit me up. I'll be more than happy to follow up with you guys and gals. And finally... If you want to contribute to this endeavor, you could do so by going to my Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. P is in Paul, A T is in Tom, R E O N is in Nancy. Whatever you want to put forth, again, not only would it mean the world to me, but it will go 100% to this experience, whether you're listening through your speakers or earbuds, the upkeep of equipment, the website, everything that has to do with this production, because whether you do or do not know, This is what I love to do, people. As I like to say, it's in the blood, it's in the DNA, and I'm here to stay. So rhyming skills aside, I love to dissect, digest, share my thoughts, opinions, analysis, critique, praise, etc. on anything and everything that has to do with what goes on in the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Center, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>